Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 442. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 442 you're listening to. My guest today is producer and recording and mastering engineer Louis Gonzalez, based out of Los Angeles, California, who's worked with Tropa Magica, Discordant, Susie True, Little Fighter, and Banana Leaf Boy, as well as many others. You can read more about him at tssmastering.com. So Louis Gonzalez coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about me taking my own advice. If you listen to the show, you know that I'm a big fan of purging gear that you're not using. So if it's sitting on your shelf and you haven't used it for six months to a year, it's time to get rid of it. And you could do a number of things with what you get from selling that gear. You could take the money and you know put it towards debt or invest it. Or you could take that money and buy gear that you will use that's more important to you than the thing the thing that you sold. So that's generally the concept for those that aren't hip to that idea or who have never heard me talk about that before. But those of you who listen to the show know all about it. I'm, I'm back at that point. I have gear to sell. I have stuff I need to purge. And as I start to see the gear accumulate, I think of, you know, some old timers that I know who's warehouses I've been to and or storage places and you see all the stuff they have and you're like oh my gosh why didn't they get rid of this years ago uh, it's also you know very akin to being at my parents house and seeing like you know years upon years of accumulated crap and you think oh you know when they when they pass uh, we're going to be here cleaning all this stuff out why can't we just get rid of this now so there's that kind of fear uh, concept playing into it. It's just like, I don't want to be that dude collecting all that gear and have my kids have to deal with it years later. Okay. So here's the other thing too. And I don't have a problem with selling it. So I really think those fears are kind of unfounded for myself, but it's something I think about. Here's the other thing. I do have a a little bit of a concern about not having what I need to do a certain gig. Should it appear? Now I know I've told you all in the past, you know, the what-if scenarios, and to ignore those. And here I'm faced with the what-if scenario. I have some interfaces, I have some mics, you know, I've got just bits and pieces and everything that I would need to do a remote recording gig. And not just like a stereo pair of mics. I'm talking about like setting up shop with a band in a remote location with interfaces and multiple mics and, you know monitors and the whole the whole thing just setting up a remote studio and i don't know why i worry about that but i think that oh if a gig comes around like that is that something that i should concern myself with and then i start to i start to step back a bit and i think well okay maybe i just won't take that money and from, from selling everything and put it in you know some kind of investment but uh maybe instead i'll buy just the key pieces that I really need and, you know, upgrade, you know, maybe I'll get, you know, 
So it would always be good to have some uh, Josephson E22 mics, you know, for toms. I should get, you know, six of those because, you know, what if the drummer has three toms and I want to mic the top and the bottom? And I start to go down that rabbit hole. And then I think, wow, wouldn't it be great just to have all the space or have the money and not worry about insuring all the stuff and holding on to it? Because quite honestly, with these mics, mostly what I do is I lend them out to friends. Hey, do you have such and such mic? Oh yeah, here, I've got one right here. Hold on to it for a couple weeks, kind of a thing. I'm sitting here staring at a Neumann U87 that I haven't used in I don't know how long. Plugged it in the other day, sounds great, really does. Sounds great on, on my voice. I could even use it on this podcast, but you know, I like my RE20. So I think, oh, I should get rid of that. And then I start to, you know, do the rationalization. So I don't know about you all, but I think what we have to do sometimes with this stuff is we have to process. Try to keep the end goal in mind of, you know, get rid of it if it's not doing its job. Or if you're tired of storing it and you don't want to deal with it anymore. Try to keep that end goal in mind. But if you've got to do a little grief processing as you go through uh, reaching your decision, that's okay. Work your way through it. It's almost like a purchase, right? If you're thinking about buying something, you don't want to do a, a spontaneous purchase. You want to think through it. You want to think, okay, if I get that piece of gear, what are the things do I have to get to make it work? You know, it's like if you're buying, I don't know, let's say you're going to buy some piece of gear that requires a lot of extra cabling. You all know that you buy that piece of gear. It's not just, you're not just buying the gear. You're buying the cabling, all the accessories, the time it takes to hook it up and test it and work it into your setup. It's the same thing with selling. You got to think through, okay, if I sell this, am I going to put myself in a strange position in the future where someone from the past is going to call up and say, hey, do you remember that time we did that remote recording gig? Can we do that again? No, I sold all my gear. We're going to have to rent everything or you're going to have to hire somebody else. So go through your process. That's what I'm going to do. But ultimately, my focus is on the end goal of only holding on to what I really need and what I really enjoy. So it's tough. I get it. If you got gear and you're thinking about getting rid of it this summer and you're going through a process, it's okay. Take your time, go through your process and maybe even put it in a closet so you don't see it. And you can think about, you know, do I really need this? And then if you don't pull it out of the closet to actually put it into use and make some money from it, maybe that's the sign. Although my wife would kill me if I put all this crap in the closet. <laughs> but anyways, think it through. What are you going to do with all your extra stuff? And in my case, it's time for a big purge and I need to commit and uh, not be afraid of it. So there it is, taking my own advice. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Louis Gonzalez here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Louis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. Absolutely. Man, I've known you through Caesar Mejia. It's not that long, but pre pandemic for sure. I think two NAMs before the pandemic hit, maybe longer. Maybe longer. Yeah. Feels like longer. So so to actually, I don't mean to nitpick, but I actually met you first and I introduced you and Caesar. Oh, mm. see, let the record state exactly. that Louie. I got to get my credit where it's due. That's right. Okay. Nothing more, Your Honor? That'll do. That'll do. All right. Well, let's get into you with all due respect to our friend Caesar. Hi, Caesar, if you're listening. Hello, Caesar. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a small town, San Pedro, California. It's a uh, port town. So we're part of Los Angeles, LA City. So actually we're considered Los Angeles because of the port of LA. It's very small. It's definitely a bubble. People there tend not to leave. They want to stay in San Pedro. They don't believe in anything outside, which is a shame because we're right next to Long Beach. We are maybe a 30 minute drive from Santa Monica, 30 minute drive from downtown LA. 30-minute drive from Disneyland. So the 110 freeway is accessible to us, so we can get anywhere, but people like to stay in that bubble. The cool thing about San Pedro is we have a beach. So I grew up next to the water, so 
Mind you, I don't know how to swim. I never learned how to swim, but I love the ocean. And so I've always been around the beach. I worked down at the family restaurant down at the port for 13 years of my life before I eventually ventured off to do other things. But yeah, that's San Pedro in a nutshell. You either know where it is and you, you were born there and live your whole life there, or you moved there because you wanted to live the quiet, small town life. Well, why did you not learn how to swim? I don't know. My other brothers know how to swim. I was the, I'm the oldest of, I don't know, five, six. I can't remember how many siblings I have. And I'm the only one that didn't teach how to swim. Wow. Right? But I love the ocean. I love it. I think it's great. I, you know, I, have, I don't get seasick. I'm not scared of going to the ocean. I'm not scared of getting on boats. I just don't know how to swim. Wow. You should just jump into a pool and see what that's like. You know, I have, believe it or not, I've actually jumped into pools to help people because they've fallen in and they don't know how to swim. And you know, I'm six feet tall. Most pools are eight feet, right? So I can just hold my breath and walk up and I don't have to swim. And there's been a couple of times where I've actually had to jump in, pull people out, and I just walked really fast to get out of the pool. Or I, I actually know how to float. So if I actually got thrown into the pool, I, I can get on my back and float, but I wouldn't know how to doggy paddle my way out of that pool. I'll just be floating there until someone grabs a hook and pulls me out. Okay, we're going to have a whole podcast just on this topic. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, a lot of th- there's a lot of things wrong with me if you, if you really oh, no. want to get into it. No, no. I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with you. I think you just, you're missing out. Oh, yeah. As someone who loves swimming, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. So you grew up there and you had a lot of brothers and sisters. Yeah, so I was the oldest of four, and then eventually we ended up adopting three of my cousins mm. once I got a little bit older. So okay. to me, that there I consider them my siblings because they were with us for a long period of time. They were with us longer than they were with their parents. So Okay. So a lot of activity in the house. Oh, yeah. A lot. We grew up in a one-bedroom apartment when there was five of us, and then we moved to a bigger apartment and eventually getting a home an actual proper house where we were able to take in the three additional siblings. Yeah, it, I've always been around family and it's always just been my family. You know, I've never been close to any of my extended family. It's always just been us, which is kind of weird because my parents, you know, neither of them play music or an instrument, you know, even though they're big fans of music. So we were raised with music in the household. So every Saturday morning, every Mexican will tell you, Saturday mornings, if you hear the music blasting, that means you got to get up and clean. (laughs) So this is how we were raised, right? So my parents would listen to traditional Mexican music, to Spanish pop music. For some reason, my dad was big into disco. So we would listen to a lot of disco growing up. Hmm. It was cool. It was different from my friends because they would tell me like, yeah, you know, I had an older brother. He got me into this type of music or that. I actually didn't get into anything other than whatever was on a radio or I would listen to on TV until my dad gave me a Walkman. Yeah. And that was probably 84 or five. So this must've been like 87, 88. And then from there on, I was just discovering hair metal, power ballads, actual metal music, old seventies stuff. And rap music obviously was a big thing, especially considering the neighborhood I grew up in. But Even though we were in a small household, my parents made sure that we had access to music, which has really started my journey in this audio stuff. So as the oldest of Mm -hmm. all the siblings, and I don't know this because I'm I'm number four of five. Oh, you're the baby. And my wife is like four of eight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Like 
These Catholics and their kids, huh? I know, those Catholics. Jeez. Stop it. Right. So as an the oldest kid, I'm curious how that played out when you were growing up and if any elements of that have manifested itself in your adult life. <laughs> well, it's interesting because uh, as, a, as a kid, I was always given responsibilities because I was the eldest. So I was responsible for my younger brothers, how to make sure to look out for them. And if my parents had to go somewhere and they had to leave us, I was in charge. So I've always been kind of the authority figure to my brothers. The way it manifested itself in my adulthood is I'm always given responsibility even when I don't want any. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and they're like, oh, yeah, I think you do great doing this. And I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know if it's just something that people can feel, but I'm always put in positions of authority and I don't know why. I'm just kind of like, but I, I think it has to do with my parents doing that to me at a young age as well. Mm-hmm. Being six years old and having to take care of my four-year-old brother while my dad had to run into the store. So it's me and him in a car. And I had to be vigilant that my brother wasn't trying to get out of his car seat or try to open the door or anything like that. Or making sure that there's no strangers coming into the door and trying to open it. And then as I got older, we had another sibling. And then now I had two kids to look after when my parents weren't around. Mm. And then so on and so forth. As I got older, more kids started coming into the picture. <laughs> the responsibility yeah, level just, just started got amped up. Skyrocketing. Yeah. I wonder if that responsibility, that that kind of weight on your shoulders just gets you to exude that as an adult. Because I mean, what I know of you and how you carry yourself, I'd probably do the same thing. I'd, meaning if I was in a situation where I needed someone's help, I'd be like, Louie, I need you to do this. I need yeah. you to do this thing and know that you take care of it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with, I used to think it was being afraid to fail. And it wasn't until I was probably in my mid twenties when I realized failure is not a bad thing. How do you learn? When you're a kid, you go and you touch a hot skillet or you know something hot, right? And you touch it and you burn your hand. Chances are you're not going to do it again. You failed to recognize that that was a danger to you and you still did it. So now you're going to learn. Either you learn or you don't. And for me, I realized, well, failure is not bad. I don't want to fail. But if I do, then I'll know, okay, A, B, C, and D got me here. Don't do that again. Try a different way of doing it. That's interesting. The recognition of the fear of failure or the recognition that failure is actually a positive thing, that took me much longer to figure out. And I think that if kids knew it more today, they'd take more chances at trying career-oriented things. But that's the thing, right? If kids knew, where do kids learn things from? It starts at the household. Yeah. So if they had a parent that, that were to tell them like, hey... It's okay if you you mess up. It's what you do after that really matters, right? So if mm-hmm. you fell down from your bike and you just laid there, what kind of person does that make you? But if you fell off your bike and you got up and you tried again, then that shows what kind of person you are. You're starting to show your character. And I think that one of the things that I hope I can do with my son is let him do things like I even I try it now. I'm like, go ahead, go ahead and do what you're going to do. And then when he starts crying, I tell him like, well, I'm not going to do that again, are you? right? You're going to learn, hopefully. But I I also want to give them positive reinforcement and letting them know like, hey, it's okay to fail. You don't have to be 100% all the time. 
Sometimes 80% is just as good as 75%. And sometimes getting a D is still good. Just got to figure out how you're going to get past that obstacle and get better. Yeah. Yeah. The whole grade thing, that's a whole deeper topic uh, yeah. there. Tell me about it. But it's all in what, how we see failure. Some people see failure as, as a doom thing. Like, oh God, it's the end of the world. I like to see it as, well, that sucked. I'm upset. How am I not going to do this again? What did I learn from this? What's the key takeaway here? Don't do that again. Perfect. Did you play an instrument growing up? Actually, I did. I play guitar. I play bass. I play a little bit of piano. And my very first instrument was a guitar when I was 16 years old. And the reason I got into it, this girl I was dating, her brother was playing Master of Puppets in his room, her older brother. And I remember like, oh, I know that song. And so I, 16-year-old kid, and I go knock on his door, and he opens it, and he's like, this long-haired dude is like, what do you want? I was like, dude, are you playing Master of Puppets? And he goes, yeah. Can I watch you play? And he says, sure. So he started going through the whole song along with the record, and I said, I want to learn how to do that. And he said, well, get a guitar. So I went to a swap meet, and I found this old Harmony guitar for 35 bucks, and that was it. That broke the levy. I, I was doing music ever since then. Yeah. We can thank Metallica. Oh, you can thank a lot of people for that because one of my uncles was big into hair metal. So he started getting me into like Poison, Rat, all those bands that were like really big in the late 80s, early 90s, Guns N' Roses. And to me, that was like coming from a urban environment where it was just hip hop or regional Mexican music. That was a brush of uh, fresh air. You know, I, I was like, oh, my God, like there's other music on the world that I can actually like and shouldn't worry about what people thought of me. That's interesting. So your kind of sphere of musical influence prior to that was was mostly traditional Mexican music yep. and, and hip-hop, really? Yep. So I, I grew up in a mostly predominant Mexican neighborhood. Yeah. And so you were either into like the traditional, what they call Norteño or Corridos, Banda, that kind of stuff for the Mexican music. Or, uh-huh. you know, you grew up listening to Tupac, East Coast stuff like Biggie Smalls, EPMD. I was big into the West Coast rap stuff because I am from Los Angeles. So I grew up listening to things like Tupac, Big Mac, Ice Cube, Dub C, anything that was part of like that whole death row family yeah. of rappers. I was all about that. It wasn't until I picked up the guitar that I was like, okay, there's other music out there. I can I can appreciate all kinds of music. And I forget because there's the age difference because... When I was coming up, hip hop was not what it was when you were coming up, commercially speaking. So that makes total sense. Okay. It's funny, you know, I always tell listeners in the show to reach out, connect with me on LinkedIn. And you mentioned Rat. The one person that is always on LinkedIn is Stephen Piercy, singer from Rat. Really? Yeah. Like, it's interesting. He and Brad from uh, Night Ranger, who Brad, I'm friends with Brad, but oh, nice. Season, but that's so funny. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. When did the recording thing start to become something of an interest for you? When did you become aware of it? I became aware of it when I was playing guitar. I didn't have an amplifier, I grew up poor, but my dad had this nice Sony stereo system, which had an auxiliary input. And so, at the time, my friend gave me a, I don't know if you remember the company DOD, they used to make like effects. So, he gave me a death metal pedal. And so, I figured I can connect the instrument jack to that. And then, I would go to Radio Shack. 
I took my pedal and I said, hey, I need to connect this to a stereo. And I told him it was a little. So he said, oh, you need a quarter inch to eighth inch. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude. I don't know what that means. So he gave me the cable and I was able to use the stereo as an amplifier. And I was like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. And then by coincidence, I just happened to put a blank tape in. And I'm like, well, I'm going to see if I can record it. And it w- I was able to record myself. And that was my introduction to recording. Mm. And so when I was in a punk band after high school, we needed to record a demo because we were trying to do this battle of the band things. And I was the only one that was working. None of the other members were working. And so I said, well, I think I can figure something out. So I had a friend who had an old Sun 12 input console. We borrowed that. I went to Radio Shack and I bought like five or six of those crappy Optimus microphones with mm-hmm. the quarter inch. And then I learned that you can take the uh, stereo out of the console into a tape machine, an actual like Sony conference recorder that had a mic input. And that's how we were recording our demos. So we would take everything from there, just put the microphones all over the place until we got a good sound. And then we would record it that way. That was like a drug when I realized this is actually cool. People get paid to do this shit. Oh, I want to do it. (laughs) Wait, I can curse, right? I, I, I curse a lot. Absolutely. Thank you. So when I realized that you can actually get paid for this, I had a a lot of other bands who we were friends with, like, hey, we want to cut a four-song demo. So if they couldn't pay, you know, money, they'd give us pizza, they'd bring us beers, you know, they'd bring us strings for guitars or cables. You know, we were bartering like punk kids would do. And eventually, when I was going to community college here in Wilmington, L.A. Harbor College, I happened to be walking by the music building And at the time, I thought, well, I love music. I might be a music major. And so I go into the music building, and I'm talking to one of the professors there. And he says, well, what do you want to do with music? And I said, well, I want to learn how to record and make records. And so then he goes, you don't need a degree for that. You can go across the way. There's a studio there. Talk to that teacher and sign up for the classes. So I said, cool. I knock on the door, opens it. There's a Mackie 3208 console in there, a Digi 01 rack unit, bunch of ADAT machines, a ADAT big remote. I don't know if you remember those big the BRC. The Absolutely. BRC, yeah. And so I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. I'm used to like being in a garage full of sweaty kids. And so I talked to the professor and he said, cool, what, what do you know about music? So I started explaining to him and he says, you need to be in this program. Like you have a knack for it. I said, great. So I signed up. And that professor ended up being Dr. Skip Perkins, who incidentally was a former student of one of the teachers who ended up being my teacher, my professor in Cal State Dominguez Hills. And so he's the reason why I kept doing the recording. And he was also the reason why I went on to the university to try to get my degree, which is where I met Caesar. Was Caesar an instructor there? Yeah, he was a teacher at Cal State Dominguez. And that's how we, that's how we met. I was his underling. His Padawan, if you will. (laughs) So your introduction was a little bit of discovery in the beginning, but then ultimately led to a proper education for it. Is that accurate? Pretty much, yeah. Did you start to change your trajectory, your plans of where you you wanted to take your life because of recording? No, that actually all happened, I don't want to say organically. So while I was going to school, I actually had a recording studio. We would rent out a uh, lockout rehearsal space, and a section of it was for guys who were producing music. 
So my band would practice there and I would actually record bands or work on my own music there. And so I was doing that from right before I went to Cal State Dominguez Hills while I was still in community college, all the way through college. But I was always working an actual job because I had to help at home. It wasn't like mm. I can just say, hey, this is all I'm going to do. I'm going to dive into this. I was always 24-7. I've always had a job, either at the studio, working with bands, or I was managing a restaurant while I was going to school. And the trajectory kind of changed when I left the restaurant and I went to go work at an Apple store. And from there, it was kind of like, oh, I can still do audio and work other jobs and it'll be okay. And working at the Apple store, I met other engineers that were doing the same thing I was. They were just there for the paycheck, there for the health insurance because Apple has the best health insurance. Really? The best. I mean, that's like my great white buffalo in terms of health insurance. And I met a lot of other engineers that were there for just the insurance. And so we would, we'd all get together and talk shop like, oh, what are you doing in your studio? What are you doing you know, at home? What are you working on now? And it was really cool because it made me realize like, there's nothing wrong with having a day job and doing this at the same time, full time. It's just some of us needed the money to survive and actually pay rent. You know, we didn't have the luxury of having our parents pay for everything. Mm-hmm. And that kind of made me realize I liked having a full-time job. And so my trajectory was, I'm going to keep doing the studio thing, but I like the consistency of having money in my bank. So from there, from Apple, I went over to Focusrite, and I was there for close to four years before I ended up moving over to the IT world for another company. What were you doing at Focusrite and how did that, how did that come up? So I was already at the end of my career at Apple. It was one of those things where I knew, okay, I did 13 years at this small restaurant and I was miserable the last four years. And I had read somewhere that every two to three years, you got to start thinking of moving on to another company. And it's not because you should, it's because that's the only way you're going to get more money is to move somewhere else. Yeah, And I said, well, I want to make more money because I want to buy more gear. You know, I, I didn't care about buying a house or anything. This is, you know, in my mid-20s, I was like, oh, I can always buy a house later. Well, it was I wrong with the way things are now, but I had no idea. But at the time, I thought, I need more microphones. I need better monitors. I need a better interface. And I think it was on Indeed.com, and I happened to see Focus. I was like, oh, I have a Focus, right? I know how to work this thing. So I applied, and I got the job. And so I got hired on as a technical support engineer. So just answering emails, phone calls, helping people with their interfaces. And what it made me realize was two things. One, if you can actually teach someone how to do this, that means you know what you're doing. That means you really have a good understanding and you understand a concept behind it. And it's easy for you to convey that information to someone that, that doesn't have the technical ability that you do. And it made me realize, oh, I actually know what I'm doing because I can tell this guy, a 65-year-old man who doesn't know anything about computers, and I can explain it well enough for him to actually be able to record. And then uh, I should have paid more attention in my synthesis class because I had no idea what any of those things were doing in the synth. So I was like, I I have no idea what this is. But those two things I learned at Focusrite, I knew what I was doing when it came to audio, and I loved to teach it. And... I should have paid more attention with the synth class because I had no idea what I was, how to make any of that stuff work. And then from there, I went to an ad agency 
doing IT. And then I've been in the IT world ever since until I went to Viacom CBS. Okay, so the IT world, what compelled you to go to there? I like to fix things. I like problem solving, which is why I think I loved working in the studio because not everyone's going to have a great sounding guitar. Not everyone's going to have great sounding drums. Although it would drive me crazy, the end result of me getting a mediocre to really good sound out of a crappy piece of equipment, to me, that was like very fulfilling. So I like to problem solve. I like to look at things, analyze them and figure out how could we make this better? which is one of the things that I really enjoyed doing at Focusrite because we would get easy problems and then we would get super complicated problems where you really had to take a step back, look at the big picture, and then hone in on what could potentially be causing a certain issue and then figuring out a way to work around that or actually potentially fixing it completely so that it doesn't happen again. The IT world thing, how long did that last? I did that for about, I'd say, six years total. And then uh, during the pandemic, I left my last job as a end user support engineer. And then I went over to Viacom CBS, which is now Paramount. And uh, it's not an IT role. It's more of a systems engineer role where we build out systems for certain departments depending on their needs. And incidentally, <laughs> I got hired to do a very specific job. And when I got there, they had these three rooms that were down for about a year and a half. And then these were mixed rooms where they would cut promos and mix to go on the broadcast and they couldn't figure it out. So I walk in there and I'm like, oh, I know how to make all this shit work. And so I got their <laughs> rooms up and running in less than two months for me being hired on. And because of that, they were like, guess what? You're now in charge of all these rooms here. So besides doing my normal system engineer role, I'm also responsible for three of the mixed rooms that we have there. That was unplanned. That was not planned. Sure. That was just happened yeah. to be, to them, it was serendipitous. To me, it was like, you guys need help. Let me take care of this for you. Again, I like to solve problems. And their whole setup there is, it's very different than what I'm used to. But because I like to solve problems, I was able to get them up and running in less than two months. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. And back to the oldest sibling factor, you're now like in charge of those rooms. You're now... It's interesting because this is where I learned a terminology. Someone can be an operator, but they can't be an engineer. And we had these guys that had been there for, I'd say the longest guy had been there for 15 years. And then after that, 10 years was the other guy. And I would ask them questions about their setup, and they just stare at me with a blank face, like, hey, we didn't set up any of these rooms. We don't know. So then I realized, okay, you guys are more operators than you are engineers, so I won't ask you any questions. Let me get this going to the bare minimum. Come in, tell me what you needed to do, and I'll take care of it for you. And yeah, I've been doing that ever since. If I might toot my own horn, the rooms have not been down since. Well, of course not. I wouldn't expect anything less from you. I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So, so you've had these gigs, and and to some degree, each one of them has an element to it that plays into the role of an audio professional in general. Yeah, even my job at the ad agency where I was just an IT guy, we had a video editing suite. And a lot of the times, the video editors really don't understand word clock or why you need to make sure all the machines are in sync, like Blackburst and that kind of stuff. So I would go in there and tell them, like, well, the reason this isn't working is because your sample rate in this thing is 48, your audio is at 44.1. They're not going to match. So we need to fix that. And so I'd have to explain to them why this sounded faster or slower is because of sample rate mismatch. So I would help them sample rate convert stuff or... There was a couple commercials that came out of there where the audio was so out of sync and I saw it on the monitor and I had to tell the engineer, like, dude, that's off by like 15, 20 frames. You got to nudge the audio a little bit this way or that way before you send it out because that's going to be bad. <laughs> that's going to look awesome. Yeah. And it was really cool. Again, the, my role had nothing to do with audio, but somehow my audio background came into play. It always kept coming up. Okay, so you're, you, you've got these steady gigs and they have their elements that have things very in common with being an audio pro. What were you doing on the side? What were your extracurricular recording activities consisting of and where were you doing them and what was up there? After I graduated from Cal State Dominguez, Caesar opened up his doors to me at the shelter, which is how I got involved with the shelter studios. And I was doing gigs out of there, and I was also mixing at home, because at that time, the distance between here and Boyle Heights, the traffic could be horrible. So I would record there, take it home, and I had a little mix station at home, and I would do the mixes there and send them off. Well, eventually, I'd say about six years ago, some of my old co-workers from Focusrite, they were like, let's do something together. So we found a place here in Signal Hill, and we rented a room and we converted it into a production suite. So we brought all our gear together, pulled it all together, and it went from me recording music to me actually help people produce their music. 
And it was kind of one of those situations where they were like, I don't know what to do with this song. What do you think we should do? Come on by the studio. Let's figure it out together. And it just became this whole thing of me going away from recording more into production. So while I was doing that, I also got into mastering out of necessity because there was a lot of projects where they couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, let me take a crack at it. And so I think that was right around the time I graduated from Cal State Dominguez, which would be 10, 12 years now. That's when I started doing the mastering stuff. And I've been mastering ever since. So do you find that you're most at home mastering or do you do you have a preference? I prefer mastering because it solves problems. Not every mix is going to be amazing. There's times where I'll get stuff where I'm just like, holy shit, like, what am I going to do here? <laughs> This is done. Finito. I, I don't need to do shit. Just make sure it's leveled and that's it. Send it on its way. And then there's times where I'm like, holy shit, what is going on here? And then I'll reach out to either the mixing engineer or the artist. I'll explain to them the situation. And if they can fix it, go back into the studio and fix it, great. If not, then I got to figure out a way to make it sound halfway as good as it could, where they're going to be happy with it. And I can sleep at night knowing, okay, they they signed off on it. Don't worry about it. Just move on. Forget it. Detach yourself from it. It's so weird how when we hear recordings that are poorly done or mixes that are poorly done, how it it sounds like it affects you like it it affects many others. Like it's just like, oh, there's something wrong and and I need to fix it and I can't sleep otherwise. The worst part is, is when you're listening to something on a streaming service like Apple Music or Spotify and you hear something, you go back and you listen closely and you can tell, oh, that's a bad edit. That's what I'm hearing. Like, you know, that's just no one cared to go in there and make sure that the edit was nice and smooth. And it drives me crazy. But I I think that's one of the things uh, as an engineer, and I'm sure you can actually agree with this. You have to learn how to turn that off when you're just listening to music leisurely. Otherwise, you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to figure out why they decided to go with a specific sound because it sounds very shrill to you, but that got approved. And you'll drive yourself crazy thinking, oh, I would if I could go back, I would fix this, this, and this. But you have to turn that part of your brain off. Otherwise, you drive yourself crazy. You know, it's funny for me that nowadays... When I listen to music, my decision-making about what I'm going to listen to hinges on not only the artist, but who worked on it. Yeah. Whether I know them or not. And if I do know them, it's interesting. It's like I give it the benefit of the doubt immediately. Yeah. Like I just, I listen to it. I'm like, okay, one of my friends mixed it. Let's let's listen. And then if if I don't know who mixed it, that's always fun to figure out like, oh, I like this mix. Who is this person? Who yeah. did this? Where does this come from? I, I've told this story before, but I went into Amoeba Records in San Francisco and I bought the Dave Matthews CD back when you were buying CDs. The CD Every Day, I think that was the name of the record. And Carl Durfler had mixed it. And I had one encounter with Carl because he had rented my studio at one point, And I just was like super intrigued by him and his whole process. And so the guy at the counter goes, oh, cool, Dave Matthews. You're going to go see him? I was like, no, nah, I don't really even like Dave Matthews. And, and he was like, why are you buying the record? And I said, oh, because this guy mixed it that I want to hear what he did on it. 
he looked at me with just utter. They'll never understand. Like, like he, like he couldn't figure it out. He was just like, well, what the fuck are you buying this for? That's so weird. You don't even like Dave Matthews. And as it turned out, it was like crazy. The mix mixes were crazy. Carl did such a killer job. Anyways, I'm taking over your interview. No, no, that's great. But I, I agree with you. There's times where I bought CDs or anything, whether it was a stream online or something, because I wanted to hear what the engineers did. And I wanted to compare to what it sounded like to the previous album. Because there's some times where a band's software album, sonically, is going to sound better than the previous one. And then there's times where the second album's like, what the hell happened here, guys? The first one sounds way better, and you guys had a smaller budget. There's no reason why the second one sounds like you're hitting a trash can for a snare. Like, what the hell's going on? Oh, yeah. And I don't want to, I hate to, like, name names of, and I'm not going to name engineers, but just bands, like two bands I've always been fond of, Jason and the Scorchers and Social Distortion, they've had some fantastic records. And then when a band you're really into puts out a record that the production, it sounds like it was recorded on ADATs in a rehearsal room. You're just like, what the fuck, man? What happened here? Yeah. I get upset because I'm like, God, these songs, these songs are great, but these productions are awful. Yeah. Pisses me off. And, and it's funny because I was just thinking about this the other day. It's insane how our expectations for the quality of production are so high now because we're so used to top 40 hits being shoved down our throats. They sound very clear, very big, very sheen and beautiful, right? And then one of your favorite bands releases something and the music is amazing, but it, the production sounds like dog shit. We're mm. kind of like, well, come on, guys. You have the money. Do it better. But again, our engineer brain is what's taking over. But our appreciation of the band, we could be like, you know what? Yeah, the quality is bad, but damn, this song is amazing. You know, I can't wait to hear them live. Or, or I really appreciate what they did here in the bridge with this solo. But again, turning that engineer brain off is very hard. Oh, we're so cursed. Very and it's for me, when I get in the car, if I'm not listening to NPR, I'm generally going towards either the big rock station here in the Bay Area, 1077 The Bone, or I'm going over to like one of two 80s stations. And it's even songs that I really didn't, or artists that I didn't really like growing up, like listening to some of the productions, I'm to this day, I'll sit in the car and I'm like, damn, right? That sounds amazing. You know what? I do the same thing. I don't like any of the hip hop or rap that's out now. You know, this is how I know I'm getting older. I'm like all these damn kids oh, yeah. in rap. You are old now. Yeah, I am. But I'll listen to the production and I'm just thinking to myself, God damn, that sounds beautiful. That is such a great mix. Like, I don't care about the message or what they're saying, but the orchestration of the, of the strings in the back and, you know, the beats and everything, that just sounds fucking phenomenal. Yeah. And I can appreciate as an engineer what they were doing. But as uh -huh. a fan of music, total garbage. I, I'll never listen to it. Zero out of 10. If I can give it a negative 10, I would do it in a heartbeat. But because you're an engineer, you're able to understand the message or anything that has to do with the lyrics and the artist have nothing to do with what the producer, the engineer, and the mastering engineer work together to put out. And you can still appreciate music as an engineer, but from an engineer's perspective and not from a consumer music perspective. Mm -hmm. So when you master now, are you mastering at home or are you mastering at a place you have outside of the home? Both. Mm. I'll master of both. So my studio is not that far from where I live. It's about 15 minutes away. 
But there's times where I'll send something out and they'll need a revision. And they're like, hey, we need this revision done now. And it's like, well, I can drive the 15 minutes or I have the sessions with me here. I can just open it up, do whatever they need, send it out. And then an hour later, they're approved. It's weird because I, I do like to use my whole setup into studio, but I'm finding now more and more that I'm trying to keep myself in a box when I'm mastering. And it's for the ability to be able to master anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really toying with the notion of pretty much keeping my mastering in the box and then doing my mixing and recording, you know, with actual hardware. But I keep flip-flopping on that. Like, oh, you know, I'd love to get a, a Masolite compressor and a, you know, EQ or whatever. But then you got pl- companies like Plugin Alliance where their plugins are phenomenal. They're stellar, right? They sound great. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do I really need to buy a $6,000, $7,000 compressor or EQ now? You know, my converters are just as good. So I don't know. I'm toying with that notion now. Yeah. I've been on that track for a long time. Like just trying to keep everything self-contained so that you can pick the laptop up and yeah. whatever extra pieces you got to bring with you and do it anywhere. I want to be able to not have to patch anything. Yeah. And, and I'm getting ready to hit a new crossroads, I think, where I'm, I may take another level of shrinkage because I still have one piece left outside of the box that I use sometimes and I don't use sometimes. But I hear you. Yeah, that ability to just have that that flexibility. So with those two setups, are you running identical setups at home and at the studio? When I'm mastering in the box, yeah, they're identical. So I'm using WaveLab on both the studio and at home. And so I have the same exact plugins here that I do at home. So it's just a matter of opening up the session. The only caveat, though, is that if I get something that was done in the box and it sounds too sterile, I'll probably run it through my B2 bomber and print it. And I I do that specifically so if I have to do a revision, I don't have to worry about reprinting it. It's already printed. And then I apply the uh, effects and stuff after the fact. And so far, that's been working out for me. I still haven't decided if I want to invest for a B2 bomber at home, but I just think that'd be overkill for something that I don't necessarily use all the time for mastering. I mostly use it for the mixing. And again, I'm at that point where I don't know if I want to completely get away from having a hybrid setup and go completely in a box or stay hybrid or just go full hardware. But that's one of the things as an engineer that we have to continuously battle. Do you ever run into the situation where the amount of mastering work starts to compete with your your day gig? Yes, yes. Luckily, I'm in a situation where financially, I can say no to a lot of things master-wise. Yeah. I'm not, I don't want to say I, I'm very picky, but there are certain times where I know I'm not the right engineer for something. Mm-hmm. And I'll be completely transparent with the artist or the engineer or producer, like, hey, this is great. I, I I think this is an amazing song or album or whatever. I don't think I'm the guy for it. And it, it's it could be because I don't have time to do it or because I really feel, hey, I think you need someone who's actually going to be able to, you know, I could get you up here, right? But I think you need someone that's going to take you up even further than that because I think you guys are ready for that jump. And I, and I don't want to necessarily take on a project unless I know I can do the best job to my ability. And there's times where I have had told people know, like, you might want to go somewhere else for A, B, C, or D, 
or I've said no because I have a lot going on in my personal life with my family. I want to spend more time with my son and wife or I'm working on productions and I just really can't take away my time with the artist to master something. And I will say no. It's not like I, I have to take on everything, even though I would love to. But there's times where I can say no to things, but I will also provide them someone else that can do a better job than me, or if not, just as good. So it's not like I'm saying, no, fuck off. It's like, no, hey, I can't do it, but I know someone who can do a good job, if not better than me. Let me put you guys in contact. And for the listener, this really should highlight the fact that you can still be an audio pro and have a day gig. Yeah, It's totally fine. It's not like you're less than or an imposter of some type. I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's a great option because not everybody's comfortable with taking the giant leap of faith and doing the audio thing full time. Always you listen to the show and you know, I ask everybody about the money thing. So clearly, (laughs) clearly you have a, a financial sense about you that it makes you more responsible financially. So are you a saver? Yeah. Yeah. I don't make a purchase unless I know I have at least half of the money on cash and I can pay it off quickly. So I'm a big firm believer. If you're going to buy something, get rid of something you're not using. So I just recently bought a small mini head, a PB6505 mini head, and I got it at a good price. But now I'm looking at, okay, I'm going to get rid of this piece of gear. I'm going to get rid of these pedals because I'm not using them. So Mm. That'll pretty much cover most of the cost of what I paid for it because I got it for cheap. I mean, I'm talking almost 70% off of what it costs retail. And so I said, well, what am I not using right now? When's the last time I used this pedal? A year ago, it's gone. When's the last time I used this effects? It's gone. And so I'll make room for the new gear. And the only problem I do have right now is slightly addicted to buying guitars. That's my only thing. Like I, I can say no I knew to there the, was uh, something. Yeah. But <laughs> the guitars that I buy, believe it or not, they're actually cheap guitars. And I like to modify them to be better. So like I bought a couple of Jacksons that retail for 200 bucks, 160, you know, if they're on sale. And I take them to my guitar guy. We upgrade the pickups. And for under $500, they're playing like they're over $2,000 in price. And I've had artists play my guitars and they're like, dude, this thing's fucking great. I'm like, yeah, man. You know, I tell them how much it costs and they're just like, what? Dude, I paid two grand for my guitar and it doesn't play like this. So that's the only caveat. I buy them cheap and then I modify them to be better. Okay. Okay. I did something the other day for the first time that I wanted to pat myself on the back for afterwards. I had microphones in the cart was ready to go to the checkout. I was on uh, the Loam microphone site. It's a small, I think, Eastern European guy that is building these amazing mics, which I actually own a lot of already, and they're not that crazy expensive. Had him in the car, was going to pick up all the accessories, and I stopped myself. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, literally, how much are you really recording? Dumped him out of the cart went over to my Betterment account and dumped money into these two investment accounts instead that would have equaled what I spent, what I would have spent on all the mic, the mics and the accessories. Do you do the 48 hour rule? I try to, that was a spur of the moment thing. That was like a, 
some uh, something I saw triggered me to go over to, to uh, probably an email from yeah. Lone that in, uh, triggered me to go over to the website. But the 48-hour rule, if I have to take 48 hours to buy something or, or think about the purchase, generally, I, I, I think that I shouldn't be buying it. I mean, yeah. really, when I think about a purchase, like I've been talking about buying a new app, speaking of Apple, and you working at the Apple store, it's too bad you don't still work at the Apple store. I know. That'd have been great. I'm st- I'm thinking about buying, or I will buy a 14 inch M2 MacBook Pro here, and I've been talking about it now for a while, and they've been out for a while, and I'm still on the 2017 MacBook Pro, but I really think now and plan financially pretty well, and I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, we're getting there. There's still some life left in the 2017, so let's just hold off a little bit longer. Let me do you a favor. Let me put my sales cap on. Is there a reason why you feel you need to replace your 2017 right now? Gun to the gun to your head. Do, would you replace it? Yeah, 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 I would. I'm just, I'm having to freeze tracks a little too often now, especially in Atmos mixing. And the machine is over here right now, actually. I can hear it to the right of me, kind of. Because the fans the go fa- crazy. The yeah. fans on, and I'm like. So that means you got to buy it. I mean, you know, plain let's, and simple. let's get rid of the fan. Let's yeah. get some more power in here. I bought a Mac Studio for my home. And at the studio, I'm still running a 2018 MacBook Pro, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't need this Mac Studio here. I don't even scratch the surface on what it can actually do. It's great if I'm mixing stuff. And I, I said, you know what? I'm going to take this Mac Studio, I'm going to put it in the studio, and then I'm going to buy me a Mac Mini, just a whatever Mac Mini for home. And then I'm in the studio. Well, I'm not even using half of its power because I have an HDX set up. So then I'm like, well, the Mac Studio doesn't need to be in here. So I'm going to keep it at home. And so I'm kind of stuck in this, this conundrum where it's like, I don't need it at home, but I also don't need it at the studio. So what should I do with my Mac Studio? I keep it here. Yeah. So I was thinking about buying a new computer, but then it's, I don't need it. And so I don't believe in the 48-hour rule, believe it or not. I think if you really need something and you have the money on hand, I always say pull the trigger. Unless it's something you can't return, then do your research, which is what I do. I'll research the hell out of something before I purchase it. Now, plugins, plugins are kind of a caveat now, right? Because with companies like Plugin Alliance and what's the other one, Slate, and whatever other subscription services that you can do, mm-hmm. to me, those are those are a no-brainer. You can... For what what am I paying off? I, I still have the old mix and master subscription for Plugin Alliance, and I'm only paying like 15 bucks a month or something like that. And I get yeah. whatever new plugins come out, I keep getting them. And to me, that's like, that's the price of three coffees. I'm going to keep the subscription. But I don't see why I should go pay three, $400 for a certain plugin if I'm not going to use it every day. So that didn't take 48 hours for me to figure out. But if I'm making a purchase that's over... A thousand dollars, then that's a whole different story, right? Because a thousand dollars is a lot of money. So I'll take oh, more. Yeah. Than, I'll take more than forty-eight hours at that point. Yeah, the plug-in thing, man. I did the same thing the other day. I was going to buy the Fab Filter compressor, which I actually don't own because I'm like probably the last person on the planet to pick up on Fab Filter. But I had it in the car, and I was like, "Like, how many compressors do you have? Yeah. Do you really, do you really need, need this it? compressor yeah. right now?" It's like, sure, you get a discount, but like, yeah. Okay, this is 116 bucks. I'm I'm just not going to buy this. And you know what? I'll be I have the fat filter stuff. I have the the mix and master suite. I only use the Pro Q3 
and the mm-hmm. limiter too. I don't use the multiband compressor and I don't use the compressor. But because I got it when it was on sale and it was in a bundle, I jumped on it. But if I had to go back, I probably would have just bought the EQ and the, comp- and the limiter and not even worried about having a compressor and multiband compressor. I just like looking at what I have and thinking, what can you use that could do the job and then you won't have to spend that money? As I get older, parting with money becomes a, a very difficult task. I'm oh, learning. yeah. Well, you know, it. it's one of those situations where not everyone can do this, right? Not everyone can say, hey, I'm going to spend $100 today or $300 on a plugin. With how technology has advanced over the years, specifically with the digital audio workstations like Pro Tools, Logic, Studio One, WaveLab, their plugins have gotten better and better every time they update. Like there's some of the Avid stuff where I pulled it up and I was like, that channel strip's pretty cool. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I never used this thing before because I was always like, yeah, screw Avid plugins. I'm not going to touch those. And now I'm like, well, you know, yeah, I'm going to put that on the on a vocal track. I want to see how it sounds. And then I'm like, oh, that's actually not bad. That's really cool. And technology has gotten so much better and computers are getting faster and faster. There's going to be a point where you don't need to buy a $300 plug-in. Eventually, you're going to be able to do it all in the box. Hopefully. What do you mean not buy a $300 plug-in and do it all in the box? Meaning, you know, you won't oh, have to. Oh, do it all with stock plug-ins. Stock plug-ins, yes. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. Very much so. And there's many people out there who don't have a lot of disposable income for this type of thing. So that's what they deal with. And I'm sure it works for them. So, And and I'll say this, to those who are starting off, there's nothing wrong with having a cheap interface. There's nothing wrong starting with cheap microphones. A lot of the times we get caught up in the whole marketing scheme, right? That we have to have a Neumann U87. We have to have a Audio-Technica 4040 microphone, put whatever big name brand microphone here or converter or whatever. At the end of the day, people are going to listen to this stuff via Spotify, Apple Music. They're going to stream it. They're not going to buy an actual CD or a vinyl record. And it breaks my heart knowing that I have thousands upon thousands of dollars of equipment. And at the end of the day, it's all going to get streamed anyway. That's funny you say that. I actually have a U87 I think I should sell. You should probably sell it. I I haven't used it in like, I don't know, three, four years, five years, probably. But it's sitting up there in the cabinet, so I'm going to get rid of it. Okay, so we're almost out of time, but I got to ask you, how does it work for you, your outside studio situation? Do you try to make it so that the work you do pays for that studio so that you can just not be putting money into it? from your other gig? That's pretty much exactly how I do it. So because we don't have a big facility, it's just a small room that we all, it's not super small, but it's enough where we can have our equipment in there, a couch. And if people want to come over, we can fit five people in there comfortably, no problem. And our overhead is very low because we're using a lockout for our production room. So split between three guys, I mean, I think I'm not even... We're not even scratching $200 a month each. Wow. Yeah. Huh. It's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, mastering a record will easily cover that. Yeah. Which is why I'm in a very peculiar situation because I can say no to things. I don't have to say yes to everything to cover rent or anything like that. And I've been in that position where I've had to actually say yes to everything because I needed the income to cover the overhead. Like I had to pay rent. I had to pay 
renter's insurance. I had to pay insurance for the people that were, you know, to cover anything that could happen inside the the studio or anything like that. And being able to be in a situation where I don't have to be in the studio all the time working. I can go in three, four days out of the week, or I can do it from home. And that's still going to cover my portion of the rent or what have you. The rest of the money I can reinvest into the studio, or I can save it. I can put it in a, my Roth IRA or invest it in an artist. Say there's an artist that I really like and they have a GoFundMe page. I want to throw a little money at them so that they can continue to do what they're doing. Or if there's an organization that I really feel strongly about and I align my beliefs with theirs, then if I have extra money left over from the studio, I donate to them. So it's cool because the job that I have pays me very well and I'm able to support my family with one income. We -hmm. have healthcare, 401k, what have you. So everything I do in the studio, that money goes back to the studio, not necessarily myself. Is it a struggle for you to not want to expand and grow your audio footprint, whether that be a studio or gear? Yes. Do you fight against that internally? All the time. All the time. Because I'm thinking of the time it's going to take me to expand, the cost it's going to take for it to get bigger, and also the energy that I'm going to exert doing it. And a lot of times I think to myself, this year I'm going to, I'm going to go audio hard to the wall, right? I'm going to quit my day job. I'm going to just work in the studio all the time. But then the, the sensible side of me is thinking, well, what about healthcare? What about vision? Mm-hmm. What about dental? What about investing into a 401k? What about life insurance? What about a steady income? You got rent, you got utilities to pay at home. You have to put food on the table. You got to pay for your two car payments. You got to pay for two insurances. And then I stop myself and say, next year. I'll think about it again next year. But truthfully, I'm really happy in the place that I am right now because I, I get to work with artists that I really love to work with. And I have a lot of repeat customers. Right. So it's gotten to the point where it's just like, dude, yeah, during the pandemic, I did this thing with about five or six artists that I had continuously been working with where I said, hey, what are you guys doing with music-wise? They're like, nothing. You know, there's no shows. I said, hey, give me two singles. I'll master them for free. And they went, they wrote music, and they released it during the pandemic. And again, I was in a situation where I didn't need to be in the studio working to make money. I had a steady income. But I saw that these people that I had been working with for years were struggling. And I said, hey, I'll help you guys. What can I, what can I do to help? You need mastering? I'll do it for free. Give me two singles. I'll take care of it for you. Mm. Yeah. You said something there that I just want to repeat. You're happy. Yeah. That's so critical here. All that other shit doesn't matter. Like you're happy. So if you're happy, you bring that home to your kid and your wife. And it's like, you're fun to be around. I'm also in a very interesting situation uh, marriage wise, because my, my wife is a creative person as well. So she understands the importance of, working on your craft. She's a writer. So she understands that, hey, I need to, this is an outlet for me. It's not necessarily a means of making money, mm-hmm. even though I do get to make money, and which is a beautiful thing. But I also need it because it's an outlet for me. I get to help someone create their music. And, and I'm all about helping. I'm all about, I don't just like to fix things. I also like to help people. And so if I can help an artist take their song and, and then mold it into something that they're really, really excited and happy about, then to me, that's great. I get paid for it, but I'm also doing this a service for an artist that really leaves happy. 
So it, it serves as an outlet too. Amazing. I love that. Well, this is another perspective and one that listeners should consider because there's more than one way to do this. And yeah, I bet you like you like having the steady gig and the steady check. And I bet the family loves the the stability, yeah. of course. And you're happy. So right on, Louie. That's awesome. And again, if you could make that leap going audio all the time, if you can take it and you know that you don't have the responsibility of a wife and kids or, or someone that's counting on you, do it. Because even if you fail, that experience is going to help you. That's going to mold you and it's going to help you down the line to do something else, whether it's an audio or a different career, that experience is going to help you. And I always tell people, you know, I'm in a different situation than everyone else, but if your parents can help you out once in a while and, and you can take the leap of faith, do it because it, eventually that experience is going to help you. But if you're in my you know, situation where you have to have a steady job, you can still do it. You can still have your cake and eat it too. Your website, TSS Mastering. What is TSS? So that is the Shelter Studios Mastering. Mm. Okay, so this is somewhat tied to Caesar? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. I'm the I'm the subdivision, one of the many things that we do at the shelter. So we don't just do recording and mixing. They also, Caesar, there's Caesar, Mike, Vega, and Noel, and they are amazing producers. I mean, some of the stuff that they work on that I get to master, I'm just like, holy shit, this is great. Other two guys you should probably get on here that came from the uh, shelter, Arno and Vega. Hopefully you get to have them as guests. They're amazing engineers. Great. And then they're just great people all around. Well, that's awesome. I'll look into that. All right. So for the for the listener, tssmastering.com, I'll put a link in the show notes clearly. Yep. And excuse the website. I had a cyber attack a couple months ago and uh, I had to bring down my WordPress site. And so I just have a quick HTML one that I threw up there just to have something up. And I'm actually in the middle of trying to hire someone to rebuild my site for me. Well, this looks great. I mean, this this gives gives everybody what they need to know. Yeah. Essentially. So well, Louie, man, great to see you. I always love chatting with you. And I assume you're gonna go to NAM in January. Oh, you know it. All right. We'll go to our favorite little bar. Oh, I know. I I was kind of hoping I got to go to the Clarion this time, but I had to do the family thing. So I told my wife, next Saturday, next Nam on the Saturday, I, I don't exist. I'll be at yeah, the Clarion. I'm, not here. I'm just going to call you to pick me up off the yeah. curb. Yeah. We can't reveal the bar because that's that's our secret location that's like such a hole in the I know. wall if, if, nobody, can, nobody wants to go to past it you'll walk right past it because you don't know how to get into it it's beautiful yeah well i like it just because it's people poke their head in and go oh, i don't know about this place and then those places are my favorite places you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of a rundown vfw hall totally totally <laughs> love it <laughs> yeah well, great to see you. Thanks so much for making time for me. Thank and you. I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you in January in person. Sounds great. All right, man. You take care. Likewise. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Louis Gonzalez here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. want to remind you to head on over to your podcast aggregator and leave a five-star review if you really like what's going on here and the interviews that I'm doing. That would very much be appreciated. That's all for me today. Let's thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the man at the top of the show, Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.